Welcome to this webinar series, Physical Activity Researcher Podcast and International Society for Physical Activity and Health, ISPA, have started collaboration. We have edited their webinars to audio-only podcast versions, so you can listen them also on the go. Our mission is to advance science and share scientific knowledge, so if your organization has relevant webinars or lectures and would like to get more audience to them, please let us know. But without further ado, let's jump to the webinar. Our last uh, talk of this little mini session um, is actually going to be given by the uh, incoming and outgoing president of ISPA. Um, so we're very fortunate to have uh, Karen and Jasper uh, on, on the call. Um, Karen is going to kick off. Um, Karen is an associate professor in public health in the Norwich Medical School at University of East Anglia. And uh, as you all know, Karen is the incoming president. Um, so Karen, uh, over to you. Many thanks, Mark. Uh, Jasper's going to share the slides for us. So we've combined our slides. Um, so yeah, thanks to Jasper for sharing and hopefully it won't be too awkward as we move through the slides. Um, so yeah, firstly, yeah, thanks for agreeing to co-host this event with ISPA. Uh, it's been really great to hear all the advancements that ProPass has been leading over recent years. We actually established this formal partnership between ISPA and ProPass uh, off the back of the WHO guidelines process, which clearly highlighted the need for more device-based evidence. Uh, so yeah, it's great to be part of this journey with ProPass and to be here to reflect on the progress made and to look at the implications for future guideline development. So the WHO guidelines uh, currently provide the most robust and up-to-date understanding of the dose-response relationship between physical activity and health. The guideline development process for the WHO is similar to the process used in the US, which was outlined by uh, Peter. But the guidelines for the WHO, the development involves both the review of the evidence and the drafting of the guidelines. Peter mentioned that they reviewed the evidence and then handed it to the feds. There's no such handing it to the feds in the WHO process. We actually review the evidence and draft the guidelines. The WHO process started by looking at the evidence that was used to inform the US, um, but we also updated those searches and considered new evidence. So we did, we were able to consider some of the newer evidence that's been touched on today. So device data was used in a sense, to inform the WHO guidelines. But the WHO guidelines largely and almost entirely were based on self-report data. So we've heard today that self-report and devices are giving us different information. We know that self-report data provides us with behavioral bouts of activity. We ask people how much they've done and they think of their usual behaviours. So they usually think of moderate to vigorous physical activity, or we usually ask about that. We mostly ask about leisure time physical activity. We typically capture purposeful and structured types of activities. And we know that self-report data is heavily reliant on recall. 
In contrast, if we give people devices, we're able to capture all movement. So we capture all domains, all intensities, all bout durations, and there's no reliance on recall. So we know that collecting data using these two different tools is going to give us different information. And we've heard from Jacob in particular that there's quite vast differences in what these two methods are telling us. Uh, so this is obviously going to have important implications for future guideline development. This issue has been touched on by Manos at the beginning. If we were to ask people about self-reported physical activity, they might tell us they've done 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity. If we put a device on that person, we might find that what they've viewed as an hour is actually six minutes of vigorous, 12 minutes of moderate and 22 minutes of light. So it's 40 minutes in total, not 60. And only 18 of those minutes were moderate to vigorous physical activity. So I think we're hearing today that it's very possible that the guidelines are overestimating how much people need to do. Because if we've been over-reporting and that over-reporting has been used to inform the guidelines, perhaps the guidelines could be much lower uh, to achieve the health benefits that we observe. So the development of or the emergence of device-based data is to somewhat to some extent, casting a bit of a shadow over what we thought we knew about the dose-response relationship. We've always been pretty clear that we understand this, this dose-response pattern, but now we have this new evidence which is making us question how much we do really know, and perhaps the evidence looks quite different to, to what we thought. We've obviously got a lot of self-report data. We've been collecting self-report data for many years. We've got a relatively small amount of device-based data. But we know that this device-based data is providing very useful insights, potentially more accurate insights into the dose-response relationship. So when it comes to the next round of guidelines, we, I think we've got no choice but to combine these two different types of data. And we know that they're giving us a very different picture. We know that one's potentially stronger than the other, but then there's a much smaller evidence base. So I think the key challenge as we move forward is to work out how we're going to best combine these two very different data sources. I think over time, we could move to device-based guidelines, which is certainly Manos's dream and, you know, the, the agenda of ProPass. But we're not there yet. And I don't think we're going to be there by 2027, which is when the WHO guidelines process will start if we proceed with guidelines for 2030, which has been suggested. And so we're going to have to find good ways to combine this evidence to come up with meaningful and robust guidelines. There's certainly some strengths of using device-based data to construct guidelines, and we've heard some of this today. Devices are providing us evidence on the benefits of light intensity activity. And we're learning that light intensity activity is actually very beneficial. And we've previously not measured that using self-report. So we're now able to capture that and to include reference to light intensity activity in guidelines, which is great and particularly important for certain groups like older adults, people with disabilities, for example. We're able to explore the role of bouts of various different lengths we're also able to capture sporadic um, incidental types of activities, which we previously didn't capture on self-report. We're able to capture all slash most accumulated activity. I'll come on to, to say a bit more about what we're not capturing in just a second. 
there's obviously potential for data pooling and harmonization and we've heard a lot about that this morning and that's providing all sorts of opportunities to have much larger data sets and produce much more robust estimates of the dose response relationship and we're able to gain much deeper insights into the joint association between physical activity and sedentary behavior so we're we're able to manipulate the data using both sedentary and physical activity whereas previously we used to have to deal with those behaviors um, quite separately. In terms of the limitations of using devices to construct guidelines, an obvious one is muscle strength and balance activities. These are really important elements of the physical activity guidelines, but we know that muscle strength and balance activities are not captured particularly well using devices. So we need to consider if we do move to devices, how we're going to develop future guidelines for muscle strength and balance activities. Devices don't tell us anything about domains. We know that occupational physical activity is not associated with the same positive health outcomes as leisure time physical activity. So if we're just capturing all activity with no information on domains, we're unable to factor that into our analysis. Relative intensity is also important. What is moderate for one person is not necessarily moderate for the next person. So how we deal with relative intensity, I think, is a challenge as we consider using devices to inform guidelines. Also, devices may not be appropriate for collecting data from all population groups. And here I'm particularly thinking of wheelchair users, for example. In ProPass, you're using uh, thigh-worn accelerometry. That's certainly not going to capture upper body movement, which is the predominant predominant type of activity undertaken by wheelchair users. Thinking about different population groups, we also need to ensure we don't widen the disparities between the evidence we've got from high income countries and the evidence we've got from low and middle income countries. We also need to resolve this issue about device placement. So we've heard today that thigh-worn and wrist-worn accelerometry are providing us with different information. I think it was, I um, can't remember which speaker, but there was reference made to Biobank and another study which have used wrist-worn accelerometry and provide much higher estimates of physical activity. So there's a number of limitations or issues that we need to grapple with if we are going to move forward with device-based guidelines. And the final thing that I'm going to say before I pass on to Jasper is that the guidelines are not intended as public-facing messages to motivate behaviour change. It's really important that we consider the translation of scientific guidelines into public-facing messages. And I think this is even more important as we move to devices I think minutes are quite easy to kind of get your head around. But as we start moving to raw acceleration and cut points and wear time and all these quite difficult concepts to grasp, we need to consider how we better message this stuff to the public. And it could well be that the messaging that we use does not reflect the science. It could be that we don't need to tell people it's 150 minutes or 300 minutes or whatever it is we come up with next time around it could be that we just need to say be active to boost your mood that's going to be more motivating it's going to be perceived as more achievable so I think we need to just consider next time around how we do a better job of messaging the guidelines and formative evaluation and co-production are key here to understand our different audiences and what's going to resonate with them and motivate them to change their behavior that's all for me I'm going to now hand to Jasper 
Thank you very much, Karen. Um, yes, so um, I'll continue a little bit along the same lines. While um, in a lot of our research, I'm a very big fan of device-based measures. And um, Karen mentioned just before that domains is one of the things where we struggle with device-based measures. Well, that's one of the uh, areas of research where uh, I think we do also have possibilities device-based. But there are also some other challenges we have to consider moving forward with um, device-based studies and basing guidelines on, the, uh, on them. So um, one of the things that I think is important to realize is that I think we, everyone that has done device-based studies knows that recruitment can be a bit challenging. And potentially there might be similar issues at, as with randomized controlled trials. We might be looking at a situation where we have a high internal validity, so we know very well what we are measuring and we trust the quality of our measurements. But because the people that we include in these um, data collections might be quite selected, the external validity could be relatively low, which is obviously, obviously something to, to be aware of. So might there be some sort of a sampling bias happening when we select people, when we invite people into our device-based studies? Um, and with that, of course, because guidelines and, and monitoring of physical activity levels, we're looking also at population level. Can we use device-based measures to get a good sense of population level physical activity? So to answer or try to answer some of these questions. We we used the opportunity that we had in Denmark, where we uh, October November 2020, um, in a period where fortunately we were not closed down for uh, for COVID in in Denmark, where we had a very large national survey. Uh, so we uh, randomly selected four just over four hundred thousand people to send a survey to. We got a response from just over 160,000 people. And in that big survey about physical activity behaviors, um, just under 40,000 people said yes to being asked again to participate in an advice-based study. Um, and our thought was, okay, we, uh, we have this very big sample. We have, um, yes, they are self-selected to saying yes, uh, to being invited again for a device-based study. But we had the opportunity to, to balance our sample to make sure that the 7,500 people that we invited for our device-based study, that they, again, were very similar to the 404,000 people uh, that we selected to begin with for our big survey. About 1,500 people accepted to participate in our uh, in our device-based study, and we ended up with just over 900 with valid data. Um, and I should also mention here that what I'm presenting here is uh, the preliminary analysis done by two of my colleagues, Sophie and Lars, with the, the help of Adrian Baumann when he was visiting us in Denmark uh, the past couple of months. So just to, to give you some impression of, of how this looked, so how similar or different was this sample of just over 1,500 people with devices versus our big sample of over 160,000 people that answered a survey. 
So if we just looked at some demographic differences, you can see marked in red here, there are some areas where there was a difference. So on the left hand here, there's the, the big sample, the survey sample, and on the right hand, there is the uh, device-based sample. We don't need to go into details, but there were some slight differences, primarily um, a little bit uh, more men in our device-based sample, and typically, uh, level of education or employment was a little higher than in our general sample. Some differences, not potentially not problematic, but there were some differences to be aware of. However, when we then look at the self-reported activity levels, and this is um, the data from the same survey, so we didn't ask our sample with the devices twice, we just used the selected people from that were the devices and looked at what the, had they self-reported in the survey, what we can see is that they are clearly more active during leisure time, but in particular, they're much more active during transportation. So the, it, clearly it is a selected sample that we have here. Um, so despite all our ever, uh, efforts in trying to get a balanced sample that was a reflective or representative for the population in terms of activity behavior, we got a balance or a, um, a biased sample in social demographic terms, but I said, especially in terms of physical activity behavior. We tried to did some, do some very rough comparisons between self-report and, and device-based measures. And as we've heard from many of the speakers, in essence, there are two different things that are almost not related. So perhaps we shouldn't expect too much um, similarities between that, but we had a look and why did we do that? Uh, primarily to get an idea of, well, can we roughly divide um, our population into, do they meet the, the recommended levels of weekly physical activity? Yes or no. Very simple one item question. Um, and then we compared um, the, did they meet the guidelines uh, looking at the survey in the, uh, uh, the columns and then uh, in the rows, did they meet the guidelines uh, based on the devices? And obviously what we would like to find here is that the people that according to the survey uh, don't meet the guidelines also according to the devices don't meet them and about for about 40 percent just over 40 percent of our respondents that was indeed the case the other end where it's a yes and a yes just over 25 percent but the two other groups there where there is a difference they're obviously problematic so um working towards the end here mark um so do we want to uh, look at devices for the future. Um, there, I don't think there's any doubt, especially after hearing all these uh, presentations today, devices give us a lot higher quality evidence um, uh, and we want to use the data as much as possible. But I said, should we also then use that same type of measuring for um, population monitoring? They're very different. Um, they provide high quality measures. Data collection is challenging. I think we all know that. And I think as this little uh, analysis showed, recruitment and especially representativeness can be quite problematic. So is are these type of devices, are they the right way to go when we talk population monitoring, when we talk about in the future, um, 
trying to evaluate how well our country's doing in having people meet the recommended levels of physical activity. So um, some other challenges to do with representation, sampling, and so on, to add to some of the technical challenges that we've heard about before. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Karen. Yeah, so that was, that was uh, fantastic. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.